Chapter 20 43 games of computer solitaire later, I was ready to stab myself in the thigh with a fork just to alleviate the boredom. Sarah and Mary Margaret probably felt the same way. There was hardly a spare piece of paper that hadn't been filed, a piece of furniture or equipment that hadn't been dusted. Occasional checks on the webcams stashed around Sarah's apartment showed no activity. The only things that hadn't received a thorough cleaning were the Glock in my shoulder holster and the P9 around my ankle. If Hawksworth was going to bust through my door, our only protection was not going to be spread out in pieces across my desk. Boredom was a big part of the job. I knew that from being a cop. Nearly ten years into the P.I. business, it was no different. If I ever told you I kept my mind completely on the subject during surveillance, well, let's just say I wouldn't say it under oath. More than once this afternoon, I let my mind drift back to that night with Alicia, smiling as I remembered the feeling of her skin against mine, her warm, sweet smell, how her nails dug into my back as she cried out in pleasure. We hadn't spoken since that night, but that was okay. We both had our hands full. She with her grand jury case and I with this mess. We'd see each other when we could. I wanted to see her. Soon. But this was different. It wasn't like what I felt with Gracie. With Gracie, I dropped whatever I was doing to go see her. I'd stand at the door of her classroom as the period ended, watching her explain the finer points of music theory and smiling as she absently brushed her dark hair from her face. Coming up the stairs at night, I'd hear the soft tones of her cello as she practiced in her home office, my heart bursting as her eyes lit up when she saw me come into the room. Those thoughts were always balanced by the last days in the hospital, when Gracie's gorgeous black hair was gone, when the light was gone from her sunken eyes, and the only music around was the incessant beep of the medical equipment. Gracie had been my everything, my world, my universe. The same searing pain I'd felt while holding her at her death ripped through my soul all over again. Could I risk that with Alicia? What if we got that involved? Was I ready to try? I wasn't sure. But even Alicia said we we're going to take things slowly, right? She wasn't looking for an immediate commitment. Deep down, was I? No, I wasn't. Could I stand another loss like that? I knew I couldn't, even if Alicia was young and healthy. Gracie's death left me with one painful lesson. You never knew when your most precious possession would be snatched from you. Was this thing with Alicia going to be purely physical? Nothing wrong with that, I guess, but what if it was keeping me from delving deeper into what was hiding in my heart? My thoughts steered away from Alicia when Mary Margaret started singing Surrey with the fringe on top for like the fourth time that afternoon driving me closer to understanding how a human being could commit homicide. Sarah was strangely silent and had been all afternoon. There was clearly a deeper relationship with Tommy Lynn than I realized. It also might be sinking in that her father wanted her dead, or that her mother had been murdered. I wandered back to the vault. Her shoulders were hunched, and I thought she wiped away a tear or two as I entered. Hey, you doing okay? I'm fine. You want to talk about anything? Nope. All right. If you need me, shut up, Fitz. You're welcome. By 6.45, there was no word from Barnes, so I had to assume the worst. Chase Hawksworth was still at large and a threat to my client's life. 
I pulled the excursion around to the front of the office, and Sarah and Mary Margaret dashed from the building into my vehicle. The sense of danger hung on our shoulders like the smoke from Sarah's cigarette. None of us spoke on the way to Divas. As we pulled up, I recognized a couple of unmarked units in the unlit corners of the gravel parking lot. The cops there, one of them Steve Jones, nodded imperceptibly and pulled his pirate's baseball cap over his eyes as he slouched into the driver's seat. I returned the nod and shepherded my charges into the bar. My eyes took a few minutes to adjust to the dark entrance, which was really just a small enclosed porch blocked with another door. Sarah stood up on her tiptoes and waved to someone inside. The door swung open, and we were blinded with light, surrounded suddenly by about a dozen drag queens, several incarnations of Marilyn Monroe, a couple Liza Minnelli takes, and one Jackie Kennedy, complete with pillbox hat and whispery voice, albeit in a lower register than mine. They all ran up at once and hugged Sarah, their words ringing together. I couldn't tell which one was speaking. We heard about your mother. We're so sorry. It's all over the news. Sarah pulled away from their hugs. Thank you. Uh, I need to introduce you to my... my... I finished for her. Bodyguard. I'm here to protect Sarah. One of the Maryland impersonators sidled up to me with mincing high-heeled steps, rubbing a plump behind against my crotch. She spoke in a high, squeaky whisper, as if she was still on the set of How to Marry a Millionaire. Ooh, a bodyguard. Is that a gun in your pants, or are you just happy to see me? Is that real? I jokingly reached for her ass with both hands. Can I touch it? The chatter around us stopped dead. Mary Margaret's eyes froze wide and Sarah's lip curled in smug anticipation of my getting decked. Marilyn turned sharply. Her voice dropped two octaves. You do, honey, and I'll have your balls on my Christmas tree. The group exploded in laughter, and, the ice broken, we walked on in. I'd never been inside, Divas. Never been one of the off-duty cops who'd worked security at the place. Once past the dark entryway, it exploded in bright colors. Thousands of tiny Christmas lights sparkled like multicolored stars across the ceiling. Against one wall was a small stage, complete with green velvet curtain. Two pictures sat next to each other on a small table at center stage. One photo was of a teenage boy, uncomfortable in a navy school jacket, tie, and white shirt. The other was a professional photograph, what Tommy Lynn must have looked like just before her death. In the professional shot, she had big, curly, black pageant hair, and stretching from inside her fringed skirt, fabulous legs that went on forever. She was buxom, like Sarah, and her broad smile showed a chipped front tooth. Tony Repetto was right to hire her. She was gorgeous. The bar, worn smooth and dark from generations of unknown hands, was at the opposite end of the room. My eyes swept the crowd, outside of the drag queens who greeted us. It was mixed with males and females, and dressed in dark funeral clothes. I recognized one of the dancers from the cat's meow, the redhead with bored eyes I'd seen a week ago on my first visit. Others could have been patrons for all I knew. Who am I to judge? Instead of being dark and somber like the Catholic funerals I'd grown up with, this group seemed relaxed and chatty, conversation lubricated with whatever drink they had in front of them. Chase Hawksworth was not among the crowd. Neither was Ed Nash. That wasn't reassuring. It just meant any threat against my client could come from an unknown source if I wasn't careful. I folded my arms, grasping the pebbled grip of my Glock inside my jacket. 
I stood straighter behind Sarah, hoping to inspire intimidation. If anything was going to happen here, I was ready. And at least, according to Barnes' promises, the cavalry wasn't far away. A short, bald guy with broad shoulders was behind the bar. He wore a flannel shirt with frayed fabric where the sleeves used to be. It didn't require sleeves. His arms had enough tattoos to make him look like he should be doing 20 to life. Like everyone else here, he seemed to know my client. Sarah, sweetie, come on over here. His voice was high and feminine, and he patted the bar. Now that you're here, we can get things started. I followed Sarah to the bar, where the bartender, Jake, handed her a microphone. She smiled sadly and worked her way through the crowd toward the stage, me close behind. As she walked, the chatter around her quieted, and the crowd turned toward her. I found a spot next to the stage and leaned against the wall as the bartender began to speak. Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. We're here to remember Tommy Lynn Astor, one of our beautiful transgender community whose life was tragically cut short. Through Tommy Lynn, we learned about her best friend from high school, Sarah Pelfrey, who was a fellow dancer. Sarah, would you like to say a few words? Thanks, Jake. When she spoke, it was slow and stupid as usual. She'd told me her condition was anhedonia, that that's what caused the stupor long after the drugs were gone. Was it permanent? What could this tiny woman have been like before the meth fried her brain? As sharp as her parents were to build full-bore drilling, who knows what she could have become if drugs hadn't gotten in the way. Then again, were the drugs as a result of what was going on between her parents or something else? I never knew what to think anymore. I met Thomas Astor in our senior year of high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. As she spoke, the dull, slow cadence fell away. I could see her face becoming more animated, less masked. Our senior year wasn't like a lot of folks, though. Tommy and I met in rehab, alcohol rehab. We both knew alcohol was just the disguise we both used to hide the pain in our lives. We both had reasons to hide in a bottle of vodka. Mine was my parents. That situation is too fucked up to go into here, but Tommy's was different. He knew he'd been born into the wrong body. My parents had enough money to put me in boarding school, someplace where they could hide me away, where the world couldn't see me struggle. Tommy's family didn't have money. They had religion. And that religion told them that the reason their son wanted to wear his sister's clothes wasn't because he was born in the wrong body, but because he was a pervert. A sinner. The audience booed. Sarah wiped a tear from her eyes and continued. So they threw him out. And he ran away to New York City. I didn't hear from him for a couple years. Emotion cracked in Sarah's voice as the story took a familiar turn. I found him again in Pittsburgh, in rehab. We'd been down a rough road, both of us. I'm not proud to tell you. We, we both struggled with more than one drug. We both lived on the streets and we both sold our bodies to survive. But this time, when I saw Tommy, he was the woman she was meant to be. Tall, gorgeous, girly. And I knew I was going to be okay because I had my friend back. The one friend I knew I could really lean on. Applause interrupted her story, but now she was smiling, if sadly. It hadn't been an easy trip for either of us, but Tommy, she wanted to be called Tommy Lynn now, was making progress. It was Tommy Lynn who talked me into going to the police about Pablo Hernandez. I thought I was doing her a favor when I got a job dancing at the cat's meow. 
Jake reached over to comfort her, but she pushed him away. She handed him the microphone, too overcome with emotion to speak anymore. Anyone else got anything to say about our dear friend Tommy Lynn? One by one, members of the audience got up to speak. Over and over, the stories were the same. Through her own struggle, Tommy Lynn had found purpose, helping others. Sarah included. She would be missed greatly by everyone here. Tommy Lynn taught me how to put on my makeup. Tommy Lynn taught me to be proud of who I am. She helped me to accept my son the way he was and the girl he was meant to be. She was part of my Narcotics Anonymous group and helped us all stay sober. She went with me when I came out to my parents as a lesbian. Tommy Lynn got me into rehab and told me not to be ashamed of the struggle. For all she did within the LGBT community, I had to wonder why Tommy Lynn was working as a stripper. Maybe, like many exotic dancers, it was a stepping stone to the next goal, or a way to pay for school. In the largely male population working in the fracking fields, stripping could be an easy way to make money, despite the obvious danger. It was nearly 10 o'clock by the time the memorial ended. It concluded, of course, with one of the Lizas singing the theme from Cabaret and a champagne toast. Sarah and Mary Margaret had soda. The crowd walked Sarah, Mary Margaret, and me about halfway back to the excursion, hugging and kissing us all goodbye. When we were finally alone, I turned to Sarah. You told Barnes how to contact Tommy Lynn's parents? She nodded. They were supposed to come out to pick up the body today. Were they going to bury her as their son or as their daughter? Who knows? I've met those people once and they were the coldest, nastiest people I've ever met. They hated me and they hated what Tommy was. I don't ever want to see them. Well, odds are that'll never happen. I opened the back door of the SUV. Sarah, give me your phone. She fished through her ratty bag and handed it to me. I scrolled through until I found the number I wanted and with my thumb texted a short message. As the women slid into the back seat, I pocketed the phone, then pulled out my own and dialed Barnes. I sent the text. I don't know why. He's not coming down here. Barnes, along with a couple unmarked cars, were sitting outside Sarah's apartment. Why do you think that? Because I just know. You're wasting your time. Yeah, we'll find out, won't we? I ended the call and shoved the phone back into my pocket. Where are we headed next? Is your mother comfortable with putting Sarah up for one more night? Sarah rolled her eyes as Mary Margaret nodded enthusiastically. Oh, yes. She just loved Sarah. Okay. I'll drop you off over there, then I'll go back to Sarah's apartment. All we have to do now is wait for the other shoe to drop. Suddenly, footsteps. Footsteps running on gravel. I pulled my Glock from inside my jacket. Fitz, behind you! 